Amen. That's going to be our prayer at the end of, not our prayer, but that's going to be what we're looking at at the end of this message. And I don't know about you, but I'm longing for that. That was a great spot for an amen. amen. All right. Hey, do me a favor. Open up to Isaiah chapter nine. We are in a study of the book of Isaiah. And uh, I just love the fact that this study of Isaiah started right at the Christmas season because we're hitting all the high spots of the Christmas text, if you want to say it that way. A couple weeks ago, I was in chapter one. Last week, I was in chapter seven and eight. Today, I'm in chapter nine. Next week, I'm going to go back to chapter six and maybe I'll be in chapter 15, the beginning of the year. I don't know where I'm going to go. I'm just, going to, I'm just flopping all over the place. No, I'm not doing that. I'm just hitting all the, the, the what we would consider Christmas texts. And uh, we're in another one. And um, again, like I said last week, chapter nine, that's we're going to be in the first seven verses. And again, I think sometimes we pull out one particular verse and miss everything else around it. And um, I want you to know that chapter nine is full of some great stuff. And so how many of you ever said or how many of you ever heard someone say, I just need a word from the Lord? You ever say that? And what we mean by that is, is, you know, whether it's God speaking to my heart, something from the word of God said to me, but we just, we just feel like, man, I, I just need God to speak to me. I need a word from him. I, I need some, my, my, heart is, my heart is sad, man. I, I, we just got some circumstances going on. And, and God, I just need a word. I just need to know you hear me. I need to know you're listening and, and just speak to me. I think we all have that, and I think we have that a lot. Well, today I want to give you a word, but I'm going to give you six of them, all right? Uh, that's the message of, uh, uh, of our, our text today, six words for Christmas. And um, I pray that these six words, maybe one of them, maybe you need to hear two of them, maybe it's all six of them, but I pray at least one of these words will be an encouragement to you. Maybe one of these words will... Uh, be a light to you. Maybe one of these words will strengthen you. Maybe one of these words will challenge you. Maybe one of these words will convict you. Maybe one of these words will become an anchor to your soul, firm and secure. And so I want us to look at six words today. So let me just open in a word of prayer and ask God to just bless this text today. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here today, grateful for this time we call Christmas. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will take this text, this text that was spoken 2,700 years ago, and use it for us today. Let us see Jesus, and let us hear these words, and let them speak to our hearts. And so we just give you this time right now, Holy Spirit, and ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's the first word that we're going to look at. The first word is this, foundation. Foundation. Now, before I speak about the word foundation, let me lay a little bit of a foundation before we get to foundation. Does everybody understand that? All right. So let's, let's get a little, little, little background on this. Again, remember, Isaiah is a prophet of God. All right. And prophets before we have the word of God, God spoke to the nation of Israel through prophets. And these prophets were people who got a, a word from the Lord, all right? And that word would sometimes come verbally. They would literally hear the very voice of God say, go to this king, go to my people and say, thus says the Lord. They would do that. And there were also times where we saw in chapter one, it says, and the vision of the Lord came to Isaiah. Isaiah has a vision, and he sees a lot of prophetic things. He sees pictures, if you almost want to say it. But he sees God gives him a vision of prophetic things. Now, Isaiah saw times where he saw prophetic events happening in his day. Things that were going to occur in a couple years or maybe in a decade. And he was able to tell, and we saw that last week with King Ahaz. And he was able to tell King Ahaz, dude... Here's what God says, terrible times are coming. And they did when the Assyrian army came in like a flood and swept through Israel. But there were also times where Isaiah got to see beyond just his time, but prophetically 
and with a vision see in the future. Chapter 9 is such a chapter. He sees not just a time, things going on in his time, but he also sees things that are going to take place in the future. And we see that actually starting in verse 1. And Isaiah writes, and he said, or he doesn't write, but he says this. He says, there will be, again, kind of, if you can, keep remembering this is what he is seeing, all right? He, he's seeing a picture that God is giving him. He says, but there will be no gloom for her, and the her is Israel, who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali were areas of Israel. He says, but in latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, there's a lot there that you and I probably read that and go, let's just move on. But let's get an understanding, a foundation of what he's talking about here. Notice he says, in the former time, and then he also says, in the latter time. Again, you and I may not understand this, but Isaiah is seeing something simultaneously. It's almost as if he is like taken up out of the picture and he's seeing the picture. And what he is seeing, when he says in the former times, it's almost as if he is seeing something in his day that already took place. Kind of think about that. He's able to see this. It hasn't happened, but he's seeing a picture of it already happening. And what he talks about, the gloom that in the former days took place, is he's talking about that he saw, even though it hadn't happened yet, he saw the Assyrian army come into Israel and destroy it. And all the people of Israel taken out of Israel and taken back to the Assyrian place. That's the gloom he's describing of in former days. But notice he says, but in latter days, it's been made glorious. The latter day is what he is now seeing that will prophetically take place in the future. Now, he didn't know when this was going to take place. We can look back because we have, the, we have it all written out. But he is seeing something that will take place 700 years later. And what he is seeing is the coming of Christ. Because this text right here is actually fulfilled in the book of Matthew, chapter 4. It says, when Jesus... I'm out of... I'm, out of, I'm all out of... Okay, Cody. I've, I've just got myself out of... Go ahead and put bring up Isaiah or Matthew chapter 4. I'm all out of whack here. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He first went to Nazareth, and then he moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what God said through the prophet Isaiah. 700 years later, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. Isaiah saw it. He saw something happening. He saw the destruction of Israel by the Assyrians, but then he sees something glorious coming. And that glorious thing coming is the foundation. Now, the foundational verse that we need to see is in, in verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. You notice that verse is stuck right in the middle, pretty much, of these verses. Jesus' coming is the foundation for everything. Jesus' coming, this verse, for to us a child is born, a son is given, it is the foundation for the rest of these verses. Without verse 6, all these other verses don't matter. Jesus is the foundation. In fact, Paul says this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul writes, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Old Testament, New Testament say the exact same thing. There is a foundation that was laid. 
And that foundation is Jesus Christ. Isaiah doesn't know perhaps his name, but he does know Emmanuel is coming. He does know that there is a child that is coming. There is a son that would be given. And Paul says it simply, it's a foundation that was laid and his name is Christ. It's Jesus. Jesus becomes the foundation for everything. Jesus is the foundation that we build our lives upon. Jesus is the foundation which the church is founded on. Jesus is the foundation that the world is upheld on. Jesus is the foundation for our salvation. Jesus is the foundation for eternal life. He is the foundation for everything. And it happened in a manger. A child comes, a son is given. And Isaiah is seeing this. And he's seeing this person, and he sees what takes place. Jesus is the foundation. Here's the second word that we see in our text today, and it's this, illumination. We have a foundation. Now we also have illumination. So there in verse 1, he's talking about the gloom and the anguish that Israel was in. In his time, but he again says in latter times, he, notice, he identifies a person. Isaiah is not, it's not about what he sees so much, but who he sees. He he sees somebody. He he sees an individual. He knows it's it's a man. He has made glorious the way of the sea. And that's what Matthew talks about, that Jesus fulfilled this. Jesus came by the Sea of Galilee. He, he came and he, he came to the regions of Naphtali and Zebulun and, and he made way glorious. Why did Jesus make the way glorious? Well, verse 2 gives us the answer. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. That's what Isaiah is seeing. He's seeing this person come into Israel and he is like a light into the darkness. You see, in Isaiah's time, the gloom and the oppression that the people were experiencing was from the Assyrian army. It was, it was, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think if you think about that for just for a moment, the United States was conquered By another nation. Would we be in gloom and anguish? Yes. Israel in Isaiah's time was feeling the gloom and the anguish when the Assyrian army came down from the north and just waylaid and conquered and destroyed Israel. The people in Jesus' time was feeling the exact same thing but from another oppressor, the Roman Empire. They were living in anguish. They were living in gloom under the oppression of the Roman Empire. But the light that burst forth into the darkness was not the darkness of the oppression of the Roman Empire. It was in the darkness of another oppression, the oppression of sin. The darkness that these people lived in was the darkness of their sin. You see, we got to remember, Isaiah is prophetically speaking 700 years before Christ. When Jesus came onto the scene and his light burst forth, Israel at that time had not heard a word from a prophet in nearly 400 years. Kind of think about that for a moment. Think about this country. This country was founded back around the 1600s. And one of the things that made it, that, that, that was bursting forth in this country was that the word of God became the foundation. Imagine what it would have been like if over the past 400 years of this country, the Bible, anything about Jesus, God, anything, we never heard of. Kind of think what that had been like. And then sometime around the the year 2000, the Bible begins to get preached. And for the first time, you start hearing this stuff. 
That's what was going on in Israel. For almost 400 years, God had not spoken to the nation of Israel. And these people were wandering around like the blind being led by whom? The blind. And the blind guides that were leading the people were hypocritical spiritual leaders. The Pharisees. These religious leaders were hypocrites that they lived one way and were telling the people to live a different way. They were putting restrictions and, and these un, un, un laws that they couldn't fulfill. And it was like drudgery to them. Chains. And it was weighing them. They were oppressed spiritually. So Jesus comes onto the scene. And Isaiah sees this. And he's like, light came into the darkness. These people were walking in deep darkness and light burst onto the scene. The light of Christ burst onto the scene physically and spiritually, if you think about it. Think of physically. When Jesus was born in that manger, light pierced the darkness. What was it that the, the, the wise men saw? A star. Okay, when you go out night at night and you look up at stars, imagine seeing all the stars. Usually there may be just like one star that seems to be a little bit brighter. Sometimes that's a planet, okay? It seems to be a little bit brighter. But imagine a star that is like a hundred times brighter than any other star. Would that get your attention? Like this one night we were having a, a fire um, about a month and a half ago. And maybe you guys have had seen it. it who uh, some Elon Musk launched something up into outer space, and it was five bright lights. And we were sitting there, and I, we were like, "What in the world is that?" And you just have these five lights in line, and they're moving. And I'm like, "Oh, we're being invaded or something. That's just weird. <laughs> Aliens are coming." And Paula took a picture of it and put it online like, who, does anybody know what this is? And it turned out to be Elon Musk's something, something. But it got our attention because it was nothing else in the sky looked like that. So when this star shows up and it's bursting through the night, the wise men are like, let's follow that thing because that's awesome. When the shepherds were in the field at night, it says that the angels showed up that the glory of God shone around them. It wasn't like the angels just showed up and said, hey, dudes, what's going on? They showed up and light pierced the darkness. And they were like, we have good news for you. In the city of David, there is a, what was it? A savior. You see, Jesus pierced the darkness. And when he showed up on the scene in his ministry by the Sea of Galilee, it says that he, he shows up in John, and this is why we know that Jesus pierced the darkness of their sin, because when Jesus shows up at the Sea of Galilee, John the Baptist sees him coming toward him, and he goes, there's the Lamb of God to save the world from their sin. If you remember a couple weeks ago, do you remember the least common denominator I said why Jesus came? Do you remember what it was? Sin. Jesus, as John the Baptist says, the Savior, he is the Lamb of God. He's come to save the world from their sin. And the sin is the darkness. The sin is the darkness that the people were walking in. And that's why Jesus kept exclaiming to people, I am the, the light of what? The world. And he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus illuminated the sinfulness in people. Jesus illuminates the sin in us. You see, the truth of Jesus' words illuminates. The truth of God's word illuminates. 
Jesus didn't just come to be a light just to illuminate goodness or to illuminate just even. He came to illuminate sin. He came to illuminate and tell people, you're sinners. You see, and the truth of God's word illuminates that truth to us. Because in the book of Romans chapter 3, it makes it very clear. And it says that there is no one, not one person, righteous before God. But I'm a pretty good person. Well, that's good. But you're not righteous before God. But I give to charity. That's good. But you're not righteous before God. But I go to church. Well, that's good. But you're not righteous before God. Why? Because we, as Hebrew or as Romans chapter 3 says, we all have sinned. And we all are sinners, and our sin causes us to be separated from God. It causes us to fall short of God. And that's what the truth of God's word does. It illuminates that to us. And when I, and when, when I hear the truth, when I see the truth, the hope and the prayer is, is that truth will enlighten the eyes of my heart. And when my, the eyes of my heart are enlightened, I no longer am walking in darkness. But now I'm walking in the light of the truth of Christ. And the truth of Christ says, you are a sinner in need of a savior. Which takes us right into the third point. So we have foundation, we have illumination, and here's the third point. Salvation. The illumination points us to the need for salvation. Look at verse 4. I'm going to come back to verse 3, but um, verse 4 goes right in connection, right? Just, it, I, to me, it follows up verse 2. It says, For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. Now, the ESV kind of, the, the, the wording of that is not very user-friendly. So I like how the, the New Living Translation um, words this. And it says it this way. For you will break the yoke of slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. This morning, as I was reading this text from my NIV, I liked how it said it. It says, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. Think of back in the, 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 the old times, before there were tractors and everything, when farmers plowed their field, they used what? Oxen, cows. And in order for, to drive those cows, if they had two of them, they placed a what over them? A yoke, all right? It was a big, large, heavy, wooden thing that sat on the shoulder of those animals, and, and they couldn't move. They went wherever the, the, the driver of that was to turn them. And those cows were not free. Those cows were under the oppression, under the burden, under the heaviness of that yoke. And wherever that yoke turned, they had to go with it. They could not, they didn't... They were under the oppression of their master. What Isaiah is seeing here is not just the light illuminating the darkness, but Jesus breaking the darkness. He, he, he's, he's seeing something taking place in the people. He, he's like, these people have walked in darkness. The, 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 the light has illuminated the darkness. But now it's like this person has broken the yoke. These people were bound. They were, they were oppressed. They were, they, they were heavy laden. And, and now all of a sudden, that's been shattered. Now, when it comes to a spirit, Spiritual oppression. Like I said, these people were physically oppressed by the Roman Empire. But Jesus, and you would think, and that's what these people were thinking. Well, he's our king, and he's going to get us free from the Roman Empire. How many of you know Jesus didn't come to release them from the oppression of the Roman Empire? There was something greater that they were oppressed under, and that was the darkness of sin. And Jesus came to break the oppressor. 
Who was their oppressor? Who? Sin, but who is the author of sin? Satan. The devil. The, you got to think of like, in, in those times, spiritually, it was like the devil was the farmer. And he put the yoke on the people. And he drove them. He drove them in their sin. He, he led them in their sin. And wherever he wanted them to go, that's how they went. And Jesus comes onto the scene and he bursts forth the light of his truth. And when the people's eyes are illuminated, I'm a sinner. And in that moment, when they realized that Jesus was the Messiah, broken. The weight, the oppression, the, the, the sinfulness is broken. But here's the thing. Satan doesn't want you to be illuminated. He doesn't want the eyes of your heart opened to the truth of God's word. Satan wants you living in your sin. Satan wants you oppressed by your sin. He wants you, as Ephesians 2 says, to continue to live in and desire the passions of the world and the passions of your flesh. He wants to steal and keep you blind. You know, Paul writes it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He writes and he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ. See, that's what the enemy wants to do to you. Whether you are a teenager, a young adult, or a senior citizen, he doesn't care how old you are. He wants to keep you blinded to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And he wants to keep you oppressed, and he wants to keep you blind, and he wants to keep you walking in darkness. See, some people will say, well, you know what? You don't really have to preach the gospel to people. You don't really have to tell people they're sinners. They'll figure it out. No, they won't. Blind people can't. If you're blind, what are you seeing? Nothing. In order to see, you have to have sight. People who are in their sin are blind and they're walking in darkness. They're not, a sinner doesn't figure out on their cell, I'm a sinner. Light has got to illuminate in the darkness. And the light is the light of God's word. You see, Jesus came to give us freedom. He came to break the bondage of sin. He came to set us free. He offers salvation to everyone. But the question is, is and here's the thing, Jesus didn't just come to illuminate the, the, the sin, he came to save us from that sin. But the question is, is how do you and I get that salvation? Because here's a, a very important thing you need to know. Jesus came and he broke the, the, the back of Satan. He broke the back and the curse of sin. He broke the oppression of sin for everybody. He did that on the cross. But it's not appropriated to everyone automatically. It is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Tomorrow morning, right now, how many of you have presents under your tree? Probably most of us, right? Now, let me ask you, the, the, the parents, you've, you know, you got parents for your kids under there, and you've got their names written on the, the little tag or whatever it is, and and probably your kids, like most kids, have been looking under the tree, picking up the present. That's mine. Okay? Now, on Christmas morning, now, now, the gift is under the tree. The gift has their name on it. As a parent, you have already, in your mind, that gift is theirs, right? Now, let me ask you, if tomorrow morning... Your child rushes to the tree, looks at the present. He knows that present's for me, but doesn't take it. Does he have the gift? No. Where's, the, where's that gift going to stay? Under the tree. Even though you paid for it, 
Even though you brought it home, even though you have written their name on it, it is for them. If they do not take it, they don't have it. Salvation is the same thing. The book of Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. Salvation is through faith. The only way you and I are saved is through faith in Christ, not by what I do. That's the, that's the, the, the delusion the enemy has been able to convince so many Christians and churches for forever. Hey, if you're just a good person, you're going to go to heaven. If you were baptized as a baby, you're going to go to heaven. If you went to Sunday school when you were a kid, you're going to go to heaven. If you give to charity your whole life, you'll go to heaven. And we think our works will save us. And the Bible makes it very clear that our works do not save us. It is through faith and faith alone in Christ. You see, that's why in Romans chapter 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is a gift. Jesus paid for it. And he bought it with, your, with his life. And it's as if he had brought, he's brought it to your house and he has placed the gift under the tree. And all you've got to do is through faith, take that gift and receive it. But so many people, oh, I'm saved because... A, B, C, D, whatever. I'm saved because of this. I'm saved because I've done this. I'm saved because I... I... No. If you have never asked Christ into your life, and you've heard me say this, what is your conversion story? I'm right there. If you're looking at me going, what's a conversion story? You don't have a conversion. A conversion story is you able to say, I remember when. I heard the good news. I, I heard that I was a sinner. I remember when I heard a message, and, and, and you may not be able to tell me the exact day, but you can tell me about when. And you can say, I remember hearing a message, and I was told I was a sinner, and I looked at my, and that, that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I remember I asked Jesus to forgive me. I confessed him as my savior. I asked him into my life. I asked him to forgive me. I said, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. Be my savior. Come into my life and save me. That is your conversion story. Your conversion story is not, I'm a good person. Your conversion story is not, well, I went to Sunday school as a kid. Your conversion story is not, well, I help people and I give to charity all the time. Every time I go to Walmart and they're dinging that bell, I throw a dollar in that bucket every single time. That gets me to heaven. No, it does not. That is not your conversion story. Your conversion story is when you have confessed with your mouth. This is who Jesus is. And you believe in your heart. And you say, Jesus, it's only by faith that I come. I am saved because of who you are and what you've done for me. So Jesus, come into my life. I am telling you, no matter how old you are, if you have never confessed Christ as your Savior, you do not have a conversion story. And you are still living in your sin. And you are still walking in darkness. And right now, I am trying to illuminate that darkness with the truth of God's word. And my prayer is that that illumination of God's word is going to illuminate your heart. And maybe one of the, and, and, and in this moment, whether you are 15, 35, or 85, that your heart is going, something's not right. I'm hearing this differently today. And that, whole, that the Holy Spirit is illuminating to your heart. You are still in your sin. And if you do not confess Christ, you will walk in this darkness until you die. The only way we come out of the darkness is we got to receive the gift. And that gift is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of your salvation. That's why we have a child 
born in a manger. That is why we have a son that has been given. Jesus wasn't given to make us religious. He wasn't given to make us just, he, he was given as a gift for our salvation. And today that salvation can be yours. So we have foundation, we have illumination, we have salvation. Here's the fourth one, jubilation. We have jubilation. Look at verse 3. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. Again, Isaiah is seeing something with this person. He, 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 I sit and go, is he seeing Jesus as he's walking through, through Israel? And he's seeing the people... How many of you know when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the people were a little excited about Jesus, weren't they? I sat and wondered, did, did Isaiah see when, he, when Jesus delivered the demons out of Mary Magdalene and she rejoiced in that? Did he see the people rejoicing when Jesus fed the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and fish? Did he see the people rejoicing when he gave sight to the blind or when he, he said, get up and walk? Did he see the people rejoice when he was at the funeral of the woman from the city of Nain, weeping over her only son, and she was a widow, and he was in the coffin, and Jesus walks up, touches it, and says, get up. Did he see the people rejoicing at the triumphal entry? Waving their palm leaves, putting their coats, and shouting, Hosanna in the highest. He's seeing people rejoice and celebrate and be jubilant over who Jesus is. I sometimes wonder as Christians, do we lose that? Because think about this for a moment. I have just showed you how Jesus came to illuminate the sin. He came to break the bondage and the slavery and the yoke of sin in our life. I showed you that through him we are saved and we have eternal As a believer in Christ, if you are, if today you, you're, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I know he has saved me. I know he has given me a second chance. I know I have eternal life. I know I will be with him for all eternity. Let me ask you, if you know those truths and they apply to you, shouldn't there be some jubilation within us? Shouldn't there be something? Now, it doesn't mean that, that we don't have times where we weep and we mourn and we're sad and we're hurt. We have all the, we're still human. We have those emotions. But when I understand who Jesus is, when I understand what he's done for me, when I know what I have in him, shouldn't I, when I come into here to worship, there should be a jubilation coming out of me that I just want to worship who he is because of what he's done. Shouldn't there be a time when I'm just in my prayer time and I begin to just pray and then all of a sudden I just begin to thank him and praise him for what he's done. Who would like to take a pop quiz? Anybody? I haven't given a pop quiz in a while. No, you know the answer. I already gave it to you. Any takers? Come on. It's not that hard. Okay, Blaine. Give me five things. Tell me five things. I'm, five things is easy. You, can, you should be able to do this. Tell me five things that you should be jubilant about. But wait. Here's the caveat. Those five things cannot be external things. You cannot say, oh, I praise God for my family. You can't say that. You cannot say, I praise God for my children. You can't say that. I praise God for my wife. You can't say that. I praise God for my job. You can't say that. I praise God because I'm in good health. You cannot say that. Nothing external. What are you still jubilant about? Five things. Five easy things. You and I, there should be, when you are just, every day, 
you should be able to come before the Father in your prayer time and go, God, I thank you and praise you. I praise you, Father, because you don't treat me as my sins deserve. I praise you, Father, because you don't keep a record of my wrongs. I praise you, Jesus, because you came to save me. I praise you, Jesus, that my faith is not, that my salvation is not based on works, but my faith. I praise you, Jesus, that you have saved me. I praise you that I have eternal life. I praise you that I will be with you forever. I praise you that when I'm walking in the shadow of the valley of death, you are with me. I praise you because you are my rod and my staff. I praise you because you are my fortress, my strength, my stronghold. I praise you. Do you see there's a few things that you can be jubilant about? And I did not say one thing external. But sometimes I wonder, do we as Christians think that being a Christian is more drudgery than jubilation? Because sometimes I wonder if we base everything on what we have going on on the outside. As long as my circumstances are lining up and everything is going well, man, I've got something to praise God for. But what happens when my circumstances aren't lining up? What happens when my health fails? What happens when the finances are not working out? What happens when a loved one passes unexpectedly? What happens when life is just hard? Anybody think life gets hard? Some of you are in the middle of the fiery storm right now, aren't you? But let me ask you, are you allowing your circumstances, are you allowing your situation to determine your jubilation? I think a lot of us do. I'm telling you, you can be in the middle of the storm. And you can be in the middle of the hardest thing going in your life. But that doesn't change the fact that if you know Christ, you've got everything. Because this world is going to be gone. Your life is going to come to an end. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you can lose everything this life has to offer. But you're going to die one day. And if you know Christ is your Savior, as Paul says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because when I die as a believer, my body's going to be laid down, but I'm going to be in his presence. That's why you and I have so much to be jubilant about. And sometimes we just got to get that into my mind, man. When I go to worship, I'm praising him. Not because he's making my life better, but because he's given me so much outside of this thing. When I work, when I prayed, and, and I, I can praise him because of what he's done for me. Jubilation, folks. I think some of us miss that. I think some of, when was the last time that, the other morning, I, I just wanted to put this in here. I, it's not in my notes, but I, I, for me, it spoke to me. The other morning, I was watching um, Christmas Carol. And my favorite is with George C. Scott. And at the end, when he's with the, the, the spirit of the future, and, and he's showing Scrooge's life, and, and he's showing him how everybody's laughing at his death, and people are selling his stuff, and, and, and Scrooge can't figure it out. Who is this man? Why are they doing? Why are they? And he comes to the, the cemetery, and the big black figure with the long, scraggly finger points and tells him to look at the grave. And Scrooge kneels down and he's like, Spirit, tell me something. Before I look at this, are these things to be or maybe? And he begins to wipe the stone away and he sees Ebenezer Scrooge. And he falls his face on the stone and he's weeping. And he's like, please, Spirit. Let me, let me show myself, let me show that I can change and I will, I, will, I will honor the spirit of Christmas, the Christmas past, the Christmas present, the Christmas future. Every day of my life, I will honor it. And he's weeping and he's weeping and he's, and he's on the stone and then he wakes up and he's on the floor. And when he opens his eyes, he realizes, I've been given a second chance. And that morning, when he wakes up, he realizes it's Christmas morning. And he hasn't missed it. 
And here's this older guy, and he's jumping around, and he's kicking his shoes off. He's like, I feel as light as a feather. And he gets up on his bed, and he starts jumping around. He's like, he's like, I will celebrate the spirit of Christmas. He falls back, and he's, he's giddy, and he's, like, he's almost acting like he's a 10-year-old kid again. I actually started crying during that movie because I thought, shouldn't we be like that? Shouldn't there be a giddiness in us every day because of who we are in Christ and what he's done for us? Jubilation. Can you give me a few more minutes for two more words? Thank you for the one. The rest of you are like, come on, Jim. (laughs) Wrap this up, dude. Enough. I hope you're okay. But we got, a, we got two more words. Here's one more word. Exaltation. Exaltation. The first half up to for to us, a child was born, a son is given. He's been talking about the first coming of Christ. The second part is the second coming of Christ. Because look at verse 6. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When he talks about the government being on this child's shoulder, he's talking about that he's seeing this person become someone. And what he's now seeing, okay, Isaiah, I said this before, Isaiah sees what happens in his time. He's seeing what happens in 700 years in the future, but now he's seeing something even farther in the future. This is referring to what is going to take place in Revelation chapter 21, or not 21, Revelation chapter 20. No, chapter 19. I'm going to get there. (laughs) Revelation chapter 19 talks about the millennial reign of Christ. See, the next, truly the next prophetic thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture. There's really nothing else that needs to be fulfilled, only the rapture. And the rapture, as I've taught this, deals with the end times. That there's going to come a time where Jesus, as as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, he will descend partially. And with the archangel and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet, he's going to say to his church, come up here. And in that moment, the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies are going to be taken out, body and spirit reunited. And then we who are still alive at the rapture are going to be caught up in the air with Christ and go back to heaven with him. And then in that moment, hell on earth is going to take place. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on this earth during the tribulation for seven years. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be left behind and you will have to endure the the, the tribulation. And during that tribulation, judgments are going to be poured out. And at the end of the seven years is when Jesus returns. And he will establish his kingdom for for a thousand years on this earth, the millennial reign. Now, I don't know what that's going to consist of. The Bible's not very, it doesn't give a lot of detail. But Jesus will rule and reign and the government on his shoulders. Every nation will come under his leadership. Every president, every under him. I don't know about you, but I find that quite relaxing. Like, I'm tired of politics. I'm ready for someone who can truly lead, someone who truly has this under control. And the one who's going to get it done will be Jesus. And that is what Isaiah is seeing. He's seeing Jesus not as a baby anymore, but as king. Not as this little child, but as ruler. The government will be on his shoulders. And then, you know, notice what Isaiah calls him. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, there's a, depending on the Hebrew text, is that wonderful slash, you know, like comma counselor, or is it Wonderful Counselor? I go with Wonderful Counselor because you've got Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You've got all these words combined. I'm thinking it's Counselor, wonderful counselor. But even more literally, it means counseling that is wonderful. Kind of think about this. Jesus is going to be um, the King of kings and the Lord of lords during his millennial reign. He's going to truly be El Presidente. All right? And, and, but the thing is, he will not lead as a dictator. 
He's not going to lead as some wicked king. He's going to lead with wonderful counsel. And we, right now, we, are, we, we come under his spiritual leadership as shepherd. In that moment, we will literally be like sheep being led by our shepherd. Physically. Jesus in the flesh leading us. And he will do it wisely. He will do it lovingly. He will give sound advice, sound counsel. That's what he is, is a wonderful counselor. He's also mighty God. That word mighty in Hebrew actually means um, strong champion. Jesus is a champion. He defeats Satan on the cross. He defeats the last enemy of death. And actually in the, the book of Revelation, talks about that the, before the, at the end of the tribulation, the armies of the world are going to come together with the Antichrist to war against Christ when he returns. But it pretty much says that Jesus is going to speak a word and done. You and I are going to be following Jesus and, you know, like, like in battle. I don't know about you, but I really don't want to fight. I don't want to war. We won't have to. Jesus is just going to speak a word and pff, defeated. Why? Because he's mighty God. He is the champion. I think of Jesus, you know, he sees Jesus as mighty God in the millennial reign. But how many of you know when he was in that manger, he was still mighty God? That little baby with those little baby fingers, that little baby hand. How many of you know that little baby was the God of Genesis 1? That little baby with those little hands was still the God that spun everything in the heavens with his hand. I sit and think about that little baby when Mary took that baby into her hands and she looked at the face like in that song, Mary, did you know? And she looked into that little baby's hand, face, calls him Jesus and kisses that little face. Did she know that she was kissing the very face of God? I mean, that should give you chills. Why? Because he's still mighty God. He was mighty in the cradle. He was mighty on the throne or on the cross, and he will be mighty on the throne. He is mighty God. And he goes on, he says, he's also going to be called everlasting father. Some of you may have a version that says eternal father. Now, don't get this wrong. Don't, don't think that, that Isaiah is suggesting that Jesus is Jesus the son and Jesus the father. He's not saying that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all God, but three distinct. Distinct in character, distinct in what they did, distinct in everything, but all God. When he says that he is everlasting Father, it literally means that he is um, the Father of eternity. In the, Hebrew, the, in the Hebrew language, the word Father can also mean to be originator or source. Kind of like when Jesus says that Satan is the father of what? Lies means that Satan is the originator. He is the source of all lies. So when it comes to eternal things, eternal life, heaven, all of that, guess what the source is? Jesus. So if you want eternal life, if you want to go to heaven, you're not the source. Guess who the source is? It's Jesus. So you've got to go to the source in order to have eternal life because he is the father of eternity. And then he's also going to be the Prince of Peace. If you look at, when it talks about Prince of Peace, here's two things that Jesus has done about peace. When he came the first time, he was able to reconcile man, and now we have peace with God. But in his millennial reign, that is literally going to be peace on earth. Peace on earth is not going to happen before then. Because sin is going to be here. War is going to take place. There will always be unrest. But when Jesus sets his millennial kingdom up, peace on earth. That's why if you look at verse 5, it says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That means war is going to cease. There will be no more fighting, no more discourse, no more division. Perfect peace in Christ. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that. You look at this world, and it's just like out of control, no peace. But Jesus says he will be the prince of peace. Why? Because he's going to be exalted, and there's an exaltation of who he is. And then the last word quickly, culmination. It's all going to culminate to one thing in verse 7. Of the increase of his government 
and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's just not the millennial kingdom for a thousand years and it's done. There's going to be, the book of Revelation chapter 21 says that there, when you go to heaven, you're going to get to see the holy city, the new Jerusalem. That's in heaven right now. But when God destroys this earth and the, the universe that we know, it says that he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and that the eternal city is coming down to this earth. And we, as his people, will dwell with God and God with his people for how long? How long? One more time. How long? Forever. For the culmination is forever. And then look at the end of verse 7. And this is great. This last verse. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word zeal is a picture of intense fervor, passion, and emotion. The zeal of the Lord, it really depicts the Lord having um, an eagerness and a restlessness to bring it like to cause it to happen. The zeal of the Lord maybe will do, no, no, no. The zeal of the Lord, his passion, his, his desire for eternity with his people, guess what he's going to do? Will do this. He wanted to save humanity. He got it done by bringing us a child. He got that done. So guess what second is going to happen? Jesus is coming back. He's going to establish his kingdom. And the enemy, Satan, ever, is going to be done with. And God is going to establish his eternal kingdom forever. And if you know him as your savior, that's your hope. Right now, I don't know about you, but man, there are things in my heart that I long for. Sometimes I, I feel the heaviness of that longing. And maybe that's you. You long for things. And the reality is on this side of heaven, we may not see those longings come to pass. But I do know one thing. When we get to heaven, when we are with Christ, when we are with him in his millennial reign, we are with him forever and ever and ever. Every longing that you have now will be completely filled. Why? Because he becomes everything we need. Your heart may be sad right now. Your heart may be heavy. Your heart may feel emptiness. Your heart is just maybe longing for something. Listen, if you know Christ is your Savior, man, you may have that hurt on this side of heaven. But when you're with him, that longing will be gone because Jesus becomes everything we need and he fulfills it. And we will be with him forever and ever. So my... My prayer for you today is this. My first question is this. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Because if you do, everything that Isaiah said is yours. If you know Jesus, if he's the foundation of your life, then your heart's been illuminated to the truth of your sin. Then you've come to the place where you've acknowledged Christ and you know he has saved you. You know you have salvation in him. And you know that you have eternal life in him. You know that you'll be with him forever and ever. But today, if you don't know Christ as your savior, today, if, you have, if you're banking on your goodness, on who you are, on your religiousness or whatever it is, if you've never come to the place where, as I said in Romans 10, if you have never confessed Christ as your savior, you are still in your darkness, still in your sin. But that can change today. Christmas is the greatest time to receive the greatest gift. And that gift is still sitting under the tree for you. But all you got to do is reach out and take it. It's already been paid for. It's already been bought. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, today can be your day. Let's all close in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for being the foundation for our lives and giving us everything we can have. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the savior of this world and you are the savior of every person in this room. And Jesus, you paid for their, you paid for their sin. You died on a cross for their sin. But Lord, if there would be anyone in here today who has never confessed you as their savior, 
Lord, maybe there are people in here, they say, oh, I believe in Jesus. But Lord, your word says that even the enemy believes in God and shudders. Maybe there are people in here who think that because they've been good, maybe because they, they grew up going to school. Lord, there could be a, minute, a, 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 a myriad of reasons why we think we've done enough to go to heaven. But Father, I would pray today that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth to their heart to let them know that if they have never confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior, have never confessed him as Lord, that with their mouth have never said, Jesus, forgive me, come into my life and be my Savior. Help them to know that they, have, they don't have a conversion story, but help them to know they can have that story today. And so, Father, I just pray that as we close with this last song, that after this service, that there would be anyone who doesn't know you as their personal Savior, that they would talk to me. And Lord, today they could receive the greatest gift ever given. And I just ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all